you have a Bible, turn there. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we find ourselves. Also, if you're interested in joining one of the teams for the care portal, you can head over to the hospitality uh, information desk and sign up. We have different teams, you know, with supplies, driving supplies, and stuff of that nature. If you have not been involved in, in the Lord, speaking to your heart about serving families, you want to do that, head over to the, the table here through this room to the right-hand side and sign up. So we're getting ready. We're getting, closing in on the end of this book, Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 18. We ended, Pastor Ricky did a great job last week, ending in chapter 9, verse 28. We Pository preaching, pick up on the next verse. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Hear the infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Bible's in the back if you don't have any. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers have once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desire nor taken pleasure in the sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered... For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. That's where we are. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Remember, this book was written to a congregation under persecution. They were under persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they were Jewish, we remember. And therefore, being Jewish and under persecution, they were, they were being tempted in the midst of this persecution to go back to the old ways, the old patterns, the old rituals, these old covenant ways in relating, worshiping God. Not that any of those things are wrong, and I think the, the author has been making it clear, nothing wrong, of course, with the Old Testament. has been prescribed by God, but they were temporary, these offerings, these sacrifices, these rituals were temporary. They were shadows, we'll see today. Last week, uh, Ricky talked about copies of what was coming. 
And the author wants us to see, wants them to see the old covenant ways pointed to something greater, something better. His name is Jesus. His work, his accomplishments on the cross ushered in this new and better, superior covenant that fulfilled all the old promises. He wants us to see that the old covenant was pointing to something else. And now he's, he's teaching us about that contrast and seeing the Old Testament in light of Christ. Let, let me see if I can illustrate for you. We've been talking about a, lot, a lot about this, but let me see if I can illustrate for you. Have you ever seen a movie and, and you're, you're tracking with the movie and then the last two minutes of the movie, the ending just blows your mind. Didn't see it coming at all. All the signs, you didn't see it. Last week, I spent some time, last weekend when I was away, I spent some time with some family, and my nephew was telling me, he said, Uncle Lou, did you, did you see this movie called The Book of Eli? I said, no, I haven't seen it. Give me a little synopsis of the movie. Maybe some of you saw it. And if there's a spoiler alert, I asked Ricky, is this okay? He said, it's a, it's a few years old, don't worry about it, so I'm not going to worry about it. Eli, played by Denzel Washington, had a book he believed would change the world. The world was under chaos, it was broken down, it was a war-torn world. But that book was something that somebody else wanted. They didn't want him to have the book. And as this movie progresses and people are getting chopped up and killed, so if you don't like that, don't watch the movie. We find out the book is a Bible. And then at the end of the movie, it turns out that the Bible is written in, spoiler alert, Braille. Eli's blind. No one saw it. And I said to him, did you, did you notice? Did you see it? He goes, I didn't, I didn't know anything until the end. And I said, have you seen the movie again since you know the ending? He said, yeah, about 100 times. I said, do you notice anything now? He said, absolutely. I saw all the signs. Now I, now I could see. Now I saw what was happening. The Jewish people were chosen by God not because they were anything wonderful, not because they were sinless, but out of pure grace and mercy and love of God, he chose them to be a witness to the world. He gave them the word of God, the law of God, the testimony of his grace and his glory to the nations. In particular, he was working this, this redemptive work that began back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the middle of sin and brokenness. God promised to send the Savior, the Protoevangelion, the first gospel, to crush the head of Satan. And then all throughout this historical redemptive work in the Old Testament, God was pointing to something coming, something greater, a redeemer, the Lord himself. And once he came, we were supposed to look back at the work of God in history, the law of God, the word of God, and all the rituals and rites and ceremonies and say, ah, I see it now. I see it now. The, the things were said and done make sense now. And, and, and I'm here to tell you that you cannot properly interpret the Old Testament unless you read it with Christocentric lenses. In other words, Christ-centered, gospel-centered lenses. It's exactly what Jesus said. Luke 24, after his resurrection from the grave, he's on the road to a village called Emmaus. And he starts walking, and he comes along these two disciples, and he says to them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And one of them says, are you the only one around don't know what's going on? In Jerusalem, there's a man named Jesus he was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, and, and the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to, to be condemned, and they crucified him. We, we hope he was the, the, the prophet. We hope that he was the one who would redeem Israel. That was our hope. And it's been three days. Some women say they saw him, 
Uh, some women said it was, em- it was, the tomb was empty. His body wasn't there. There was angels there. And Jesus says to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that's Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Over the past couple of weeks, we've, we've, we've seen this, this, this author of Hebrews doing just that, explaining how Jesus is the true and better high priest by, by pointing to the Old Testament work of the priest, their mediation on, on behalf of the people within the Old Testament, particularly, and we've been looking at for about a month now, at least six weeks, the sacrificial system. They're supposed to see that now in light of Christ and say, ah, I get it. What was hidden, what was a shadow, what was a copy, now makes sense. And this author is contrasting how the old covenant pointed to the new covenant by declaring, as we've been saying, the supremacy, the sufficiency, and superiority of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. So we're going to look at the old a little bit in light of the new in Christ. So if you're tracking with me, here's our outline. Not all that great, but it is what it is. Why the sacrifices of the Old Covenant are insufficient. Why are they insufficient? How come the sacrifice of Christ is completely sufficient? And then lastly, just for a few minutes, we'll talk about what does that sacrifice accomplish? Not only forgiveness of sin, but there's something else that's tied to that. Very important. What does the sacrifice accomplish for believers? So Hebrews chapter 10. Just a, just a quick review when it comes to sacrifices. Um, God, remember, gave the law to Moses. Uh, in the law included ways of worship and the way to approach God uh, in worship. And you just couldn't come into the presence of God in the old way. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, why not? Why is God describing a certain way, practice, and rituals to come into his presence? What's the big deal? You don't understand the holiness of God. The word holy means separate or otherness. God is totally and holy, entirely separate from sin and from all evil. He is pure. God's holiness, his glory is this intrinsic value and worthiness and perfection and preeminence and majesty, his excellence of his character. Everything in all the universe Seen and unseen is infinitely less valuable than the infinite, incalculable value of God himself who is perfect and spotless. That's true whether you believe that or not this morning. The nature and the character of God doesn't change because you think it's not true. Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 6, comes in contact with the Lord He's in the throne room. There are, there are flying seraphims. Their eyes are covered. Can't even see the Lord of glory who's sitting on the throne. And they cry out, holy, holy is the Lord. They're crying out to each other. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The foundations of the, of the threshold shake at the voice of him who's called and the house is filled with smoke. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king of glory. The Lord of hosts. 
God's infinite beauty, his incalculable value, his impeccable holiness traumatizes Isaiah. It was J.C. Ryle said, no attribute of God is more dreadful to sinners than his holiness. The closer we are to God, the clearer our sinfulness is, end quote. So God desires to have fellowship, to have relationship with his creations, with his creation, and he gives them the means by which he can have relationship with them. It's called atonement. And by atoning for our sins in rebellious ways, we can now approach God, right? That's what the sacrificial system was all about in the Old Testament. It allows this holy God who is perfect, who traumatizes sinners who can't get near his presence, he's establishes atonement so that we can enter now into his presence. That's what the rituals were all about. That's what the sacrifices, the festivals, this, uh, uh, this idea of, of purifications, uh, this washings, all shown that sin is serious, sin is dirty, uncleanliness, uncleanliness of the soul. That's the point of the Old Testament, all the laws. We read in our text in chapter 10, It was a shadow from the true realities. And the the sacrifices were reminders. Okay, so if you're not familiar with the sacrificial system, let me just say there were all kinds, which we read here in chapter 10 as well. There were burnt offerings, a general atonement for for general sin, for uh, uh, a renewed relationship with God. It was called burnt offerings. Then there was a sin offering. You would come and you would offer a sin offering. It was mandatory. All people are sinners. There was a guilt offering, right? So it was uh, paying for sins against other people. There's all these different offerings because every sin committed, there was a penalty. That penalty needed a sacrifice in order for the worshiper to be forgiven. And it, I think it was two weeks ago, and, and Pastor Ricky picked it up again last week, we said in the midst of all this sacrificial rituals of the Old Testament, book of Leviticus, smack in the middle in chapter 16 is what we call the Day of Atonement, what they call the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. One particular day, and that's what, that's what the author's talking about, in the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10, that one day a year, where only the high priest entered into the tabernacle tent, entered then further into the outer court where the sacrifices were offered. Then he went into the holy place where the incense was, deeper, deeper, deeper. And then once he went into the most holy place, or the holy of holies, first remember he had a bull which he sacrificed for his own sins, sins of his family. Then he would offer up a goat as a sacrifice for the nation of Israel, remember? He would take the blood into the Holy of Holies with incense, and on the atonement cover, the place of propitiation, the blood was spilt. Holy God, the cherubims, if you remember that story, and the broken laws, and in between was the blood shed that atoned for sin. In the Old Testament, that was set up, the Day of Atonement, for temporary satisfaction, listen, temporary satisfaction of justice, of God's demand for justice. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And for that moment in the day of atonement, when the blood was, was spilt in on the atonement cover, on the mercy seat, on the place of propitiation, the wrath of God is appeased and adverted. God's holy and righteous wrath against sin is done away with temporarily all of which our author says was a shadow of good things to come. Look at verse one. For since the law, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, uh, the, the sacrificial system, but was a shadow of the good things to come. 
Instead of the true form of these realities, it could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect. We're going to see that word more. Make perfect, complete. Okay? It couldn't make complete a continuing of forgiveness by that sacrifice of the bulls and goats. It could not do that for those who draw near. You, there was, it's not perfect like all of a sudden you, you believe in the sacrifice and you walk away sinless. not saying that. Just ask my wife. Right? We're not sinless. Perfect, complete, totally forgiven. Remember, it was God himself who gave us in Leviticus. Let me just mention this quickly. If you, if you never heard blood sacrifices before, God said in Leviticus, I'm going to give you the creature's life which is in its blood to make atonement for yourselves. One life is shed, another life is, gives life, is forgiven. Those who are covered from the blood are free from the consequences of sin. One life is given as a payment because the wage of sin is death. And one life is, is slaughtered, is taken, the life spilled for the atoning Forgiveness of another life. That's the point. And when the author here says the good things to come, he's summing up all the things of Christ that the Old Testament was pointing to in the Day of Atonement. His, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the dead, all of which we know we have forgiveness of sin. Listen to what the writer said in chapter 9, verse 11. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come that have come. He, Christ, entered once for all into the most holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. What did he do? Thus securing an eternal redemption. The eternal redemption accomplished by Christ is the foundational and fundamental contrast between the old and the new covenants. The old covenant sacrifices temporarily postpone the judgment of God while the new covenant blood brings permanent redemption. Look at verse two. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So these Old Testament sacrifices that point to Christ, if you want to look and stay in the old covenant ways, well, what happens when you leave the temple? With the other saying in these verses, if you look back, think about it. Think about the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. What does the continuation that you have to go back year after year after year tell you? When you leave the temple after the Day of Atonement, you can't now say, all right, sins have been atoned for, and therefore I'm done. I'm now walking into the presence of God. Excuse me, uh, high priest. Let me into the Holy of Holies. It doesn't happen. The fact and reality that you have to keep going back to the temple is what he's saying over and over again. Tells you the very nature of the continuation of these sacrifices are meant actually to remind you that sin still exists. Verse three, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Why? Verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, the day of atonement, the bull to sacrifice for the high priest family, the goat for the, for, the, for the children of Israel, where it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, if we look back on the old covenant sacrifice through the lenses of the law, we see this repetitive nature, continuation, 
and, and, and the author is saying, think. If it was ever done once and for all, would you keep going back? Instead, we see that these sacrifices pointed to a shadow of something that would finally come and forgive us of our sins. Shadows are like blueprints, right? They're outlines, they're plans, they're sketches of what's going to happen. And let me tell you something. Whether, whether you are the Jewish people that are being in, in this, when this letter was written, that are under persecution, or you're here today, and, and you're not resting and relying upon the complete sufficiency of, of the atoning work of Christ, you know what, that will, know what will happen? You're going to ascribe to what's called self-atonement. You see, we all know we have sin in our lives, and that all leads us in some way, some form, some fashion, this need to pay for our sins, whether it's self-justification or, as I said, self-atonement. What we try to do is we cancel out the knowing wrongdoing in our lives. Either we, either we start doing some good deeds to outbalance that or some engage in acts of self-punishment. We've seen that especially in the Reformation days. Martin Luther. And what that looks like is, listen, we talked about this last week. You could beat yourself up all day long. Right, we talked about that. We said, you know, I, I believe God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. Beat yourself up. Try hard to do stuff. But you know what? The sin still remains if you're looking to self-atone for your sins. Even if the things we do that are good things, there's that gnawing reality that we're sinners. And maybe some of you, I hope, I hope there's not many of you here that have seared your conscience so much that it doesn't bother you anymore. But self-atonement goes back, listen family, self-atonement is nothing new. Self-atonement goes back to Genesis, chapter three, when sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it said their eyes were, were both opened and they knew that they were naked and they, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths as if this, this fig leaf underpants is going to somehow keep them from, from you know, scrutiny of God's uh, you know, glory and holiness. Self-atonement doesn't work. And God makes a way, right? He goes after the head of the covenant, Adam, who hears him walking in the garden, and Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? As if he didn't know, right? Adam said, I heard the sounds of you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked. So I hid myself. Hope you couldn't find me. In the midst of sin and chaos, God pronounced the curse of the serpent. The woman, again, the first gospel. Satan will be crushed. A savior will be born. And then God does for them what they tried to self-atone for themselves. And the Lord God, chapter 3, verse 21, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothe them, clothed them. They sought cover and salvation by sowing fig trees and leaves to cover their shame and their nakedness, self-atonement, works-based salvation. God slaughters the blood of of an animal, shedding its blood, and clothes them by grace. Substitutionary sacrifice is the gospel. God steps down and goes to the cross at the person of Christ while covering yourself is self-atonement, self-justification. These copies, these shadows, these, these blueprints of the Old Testament were never meant 
to be permanent. Only shadows and copies of things to come. For it is impossible, verse 4 again, for the blood of bulls and goats or anything else, family, to take away sins. Verse 5, how these sacrifices are completely sufficient. Consequently, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. The author once again, going into detail, explaining why Christ came into the world and what he accomplished, the necessity of his death. And what is he doing again? He does it all the time. Throughout this book, we've seen it so many times. He quotes the Old Testament, okay? Over and over again, starting in chapter one, he's quoting the Old Testament. I mentioned this before. If you have a Bible and there are, the margins is shrunk and it's, it's right in the middle of your margin, that's, that's a quote from the Old Testament, you know. And if you go back to chapter one, you'll see multiple quotes. I mean, in chapter one, he talks about the supremacy, superiority of Christ. And it's like, if you don't believe me, here's Old Testament quotes, seven of them, that point to the reality of who Jesus is. He's talking to Jewish people. He's going to bring up the Old Testament. Why wouldn't he? Remember, the New Testament wasn't written. We, they didn't have this. There, there were books circulating at this time, but it wasn't complete. Keep pointing back to the Old Testament. Keep pointing back. And he points to Psalm 40, that, that Christ came, and thankfully he came to set everything right. That he came into the world. And, and, and when, when he quotes Psalm 40, which is a psalm of David, and he talks about a body you've prepared, he's not, he's not just talking about normal circumstances where all of us have come into the world. He's speaking of the incarnation. That's exactly what he's talking about. A body you have prepared for me. I eternally existed before that day. But there has been a body that has been prepared for me. We know that Psalm 40, that David spoke, was Christ speaking through him, pointing to him, because we know David couldn't say that and literally be him. He didn't prepare a body for him to be sacrificed. David is pointing to Christ. We see how the, the Old Testament, again, the, 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 the author is showing, this is how you read the Old Testament, in light of the glory and beauty of Christ. There are many types that point to, 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 to Christ. We looked at the temple. We looked at the sacrificial system. We saw David when we went through First and Second Samuel as a type of Christ, pointing to Christ. And David's statement in Psalm 40 wasn't for him. It anticipated Look forward to the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and the writer wants us to see that. Look at verse 4 and verse 5 again. Remember, no verses in the original. He says, simple, the blood of animals could not take away sin. But verse 5, but when Jesus came into the world, took on flesh and bones, became human like us, because that's what was necessary for truly, listen, truly take away sins forever. The old covenant's animals that were sacrificed under the old covenant were unknowingly and unwillingly being led to slaughter, right? It wasn't like you walk into the stable and go, all right, who wants to get killed today? I'll go, right? They didn't even know where they were going until it was too late. Their sacrifice cannot atone for the willing, my willing sin, my knowing and willing sin. One of the reasons animal sacrifices were insufficient because there was a lack of identity with the offering and the offerer. 
It was symbolic. It was pointing. We talked about how the priest would lay hands, remember, on one of the goats, Day of Atonement. One was slaughtered, the other one, the, the priest would lay his hands on the goat and would confess the sins of the nation. It must have took like four months, but I'm, maybe he just categorized them. I don't know, but it would take a long time if it was for me. And he lays a hand. That was all looking forward, a symbolic, a foreshadow of this transferring of guilt onto this animal. But animal's blood could never atone for the life of a human. Interesting, if, if you read the Old Testament, you read the laws of the Old Testament, any animal that was sacrificed, they had to do an inspection first. Because the animal that was being sacrificed in the Old Testament had to be spotless and without defilement. Couldn't have an infection, it couldn't have uh, spots on it. It had to be perfect. Why? Because when Christ comes, who is perfect, like, oh, that's what that was all about. Jesus, the greatest sacrifice, who at the incarnation took on humanity, identified with our nature, yet lived a sinless, spotless life, so therefore he can atone for sin. Even the incarnation, according to this text, even in his incarnation, is a view, is an understanding of the act of submission of God. Look at verse 7. We have this obedience. We see he's making a point that Jesus obeyed, unlike us. Verse 7, then I said, behold, Jesus talking, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written in the scroll, me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, and he said above, you have neither desired, desired nor taken pleasure in, in sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and sin offerings. We just talked about those three offerings. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Notice what he says. It was the Father's will. I have a body you have prepared for me. It was the Son's obedience. Behold, I have come to do your will. That what was necessary to have true atonement for sins. And now when the author, and and many times in in the New Testament, and and in the Old Testament, not many times, but there are times in the Old Testament and New Testament where where God says, you know what, I'm not, I'm not, I really don't delight in your offerings. I really don't delight in your sacrifices. It's not that God said, hey, do this, but you know what? You're stupid for doing it. What he's saying is in those passages, he doesn't want ritual. He wants your heart. He He wants it to be done in faith and in love and in obedience to him. So Jesus comes along, not only obeyed the Father in every moment of his life, fulfilling the law perfectly, but Jesus also did the will of the Father in his death, in offering himself up for a once for all time substitute for sin. He was his willing sacrifice, not the unwilling animal, the willing sacrifice is the, is the final and the full and the sufficient sacrifices that abolishes all the Old Testament sacrifices. One fourth century church father said this. I think this is great. He said this. As the word, capital W, talking about Jesus, as the word who is immortal and the father's son, it was not possible for him to die. And this is the reason why he assumed a body capable of dying. When he offered his own temple and bodily instrument as a substitute for the life of all atonement, he fulfilled in death all that was required, end quote. His perfect life 
his willingness, his obedience, his death, and his resurrection. Verse 10. And by that, right? And by that, will we, look at verse 10, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The verb once and for all is emphatic. A force, a statement of force and clarity. Once and for all. And the author wants to, wants to show us not only is his sacrifice once and for all, but the results are equally as final. For the words, look at the words when it says, we have been sanctified. The Greek perfect participle, it's a finite verb. And w- what the author is saying in the most strongest possible way he can write of the permanent and enduring and continuous state of salvation into which we have entered into. Unshakable, unmovable because of what Christ has done. Our sanctification accomplished by Christ once and for all. Now, sanctification is both a process and an event. Okay, so let me just, let me just really explain that to you because, because when he says here, and by that, by that sacrifice, once and for all sacrifice of Christ, bloodshed, salvation offered and given and supplied and sufficient, we have been sanctified. What does that mean? Sanctification is the sole work of God that sets us apart from the world, living, running toward hell and destruction, takes us out of the world, sanctification set apart, that's what it means. And he sets us to him. All right? It's, 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 it's setting apart from sin, destruction, to his kingdom and his glory. Okay? So l- let me give you one verse you can wrap your head around. I love this verse that explains exactly what the, the, the event of sanctification does. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Listen to this verse. He, Paul writes, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us, set us apart, you could say, to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, we've been freed, bought with a price, the forgiveness of sins. Sanctified, by the blood sacrifice of Christ, it's done. One kingdom to the other kingdom. From the world to God. Verse 11. Contrast what I just said with verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, repeating often, offering uh, repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? sat down at the right hand of God. So all the priests are working, 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 working. Keep going. Don't sit. Right? Get the other priest in here. Talking about the regular sacrifices. It never sat. There was no chairs to sit. That's in contrast to the work of Christ. They needed to keep working. Sort of like your unending laundry. Right? Pastor Ricky can compare the perfect sacrifice of Christ and Seinfeld. I could do the unending sacrifice to your laundry that never ends. Unless you're walking around with no clothes on, everything's clean. As soon as you put something on, you're working again. 
Jesus sat down, why? Because it was finished. Tetelestai on the cross. He offered up for himself a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down because his work was finished. He sat down because his obedience and perfect sacrifice also completely, listen, satisfied God's demand for justice. It was finished and it satisfied God's demand for justice, for rebellion and sin against him. Remember, the wage of sin is death. And because Jesus dies in our place, one sacrifice for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he gets to sit down. In Christ's atonement, God demonstrates his gracious love for us and wanting us, wants to have a relationship with us, wants to have um, a communion with us, and at the same time demonstrates and maintaining his commitment to himself and his justice and his righteousness. Because the God who is not just is no God at all. And on the cross, we see his love and justice meet. Justice is served by the work of Christ who pays the penalty for our sin, absorbs the, the, the wrath we deserve, and satisfies God's demand for justice all at the cross. It was R.C. Sproul who said this. This is for you, Bill Blake. We are debtors who cannot possibly pay the moral debt that we have incurred, incurred by our offense against the righteousness of God and God's wrath is satisfied and propitiated, wrath averted, satisfied and propitiated by the perfect sacrifice that Christ makes on our behalf. In expiation of our sins are all removed. It's the cleansing work. Remitted by having our sins transferred or imputed to Christ who vicariously suffers in our stead. And he writes this, God is satisfied and our sin is removed for us in the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ, end quote. That is so good. He sits down, it's finished. He sits down, the demands of justice has been satisfied. Look at verse 13. Because he sits down because of his sovereignty. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. And, and he said this already, right? He, he, this came from Psalm 110. We already saw it in Hebrews 1. And he's talking about a time when Jesus will come, all the victory belongs to Christ. He alone is sitting, he's alone, sovereign at the right hand of the Father, equal with the Father. God promised to make Jesus' enemies a footstool. He'll be victorious over all his enemies. Now, now think about this for a moment, right? So you're the author and you're writing this letter to these people. And you're considering something or someone else that can connect you somehow to God. Old ritual, old ways, old patterns. Considering, some, considering something else to get you through the hardship, through the difficulties and, and the persecution. Somehow, somewhere, you're going to get some hope or something to make you right before God, have communion with God. And the author's saying, stop, look to Jesus. He alone is the righteousness required for you to be accepted before God. His permanent and final and full sacrifice does away with sin. Christ alone Ended the sacrificial system. He sat down. Don't return to that. Don't, don't return to that priesthood. Don't return to the old covenant, to the labors, to the activity, to the, to the animal's blood that was shed. Trust in Christ. And he would say that to us this morning. You may not be tempted to go back to the old covenant sacrifices, but we go back to all kinds of things for self-justification, for self-atonement, rather than resting in the power and the blood of Christ. 
It's not about ritual and tradition, but spiritual reality, power, forgiveness of sins, the work of Christ. There's nothing in this world of greater value than Christ. Verse 14. Verse 14 is a transitional verse for me. I don't know how to tell you how much time I spent on verse 14, but for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, okay? For by a single offering he has perfected, completed, fulfilled for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, I want, I want to show you something here. I'm no Greek scholar, don't claim to be, but there is something cool here that was point, as I was studying this week, I want you to see. And look at verse 12. In verse 12, it says, when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down. And the verbs that the writer is using, Greek aorist, English past tense, but it's a Greek aorist, it signifies a total completed action in the past. It was done in the past. It's been done. It's been done. It's over. It has been completed in the past. He sat down. He offered it up. Then in verse 14, he used a different uh, a uh, verb tense, a perfect tense. By a single offering, he has perfected. See that verse 14? Bringing to, to completion. Here he's saying that everything and anything that is essential to our salvation has been given to us through the blood of Christ. And that, that Greek tense has perfected is this, a completed action in the past, as the first one was, but also it has, it has actions of, or present results moving forward. Christ had died a one-time sacrifice for all, and now we have been perfected for a single offering. We've been perfected for all time in the past, but moving forward. Okay, you following me? So in other words, the new covenant believers who are resting in the, in the, in the provision of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the blood of Christ, I've been made whole and complete now in the present for what Christ has done, okay? Now, track with me one more time. In verse 14, the second part, for by single offering he has perfected from in the past moving into, into the, to, to the present for all time those who are being sanctified. That's an activity moving continuously in the future. Past, present, future. Follow me? So if you put it all together, this is what these verbs teach us. Christ, his one-time sacrifice, took place in the past. It is finished. It is completed. You can't change it. You can't do anything about it. It is done. And those who trust in him will experience the work of, the sal- of salvation the moment they, by faith, turn from their sin, trust in Christ, become children of God. And the work of salvation is continually sanctifying as we move forward in his kingdom for his glory. You got that? Now in verse 14, you got the past, you got the present, you got the future. I'm gonna throw something else at you, okay? You're all smart here. Put your thinking cap on. The last part of verse 14, those are being sanctified. It could mean, when it says being sanctified, is the process, uh, Philippians says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God is work in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. It's the work that every believer knows, if you've been a Christian for an hour, that you're still a sinner, and God is working in your life to get rid of sin. And hopefully after a few years go by, you're like, you know what, I'm a this much better than I was. That's sanctifying. Being made more and more like the image of Christ. Hopefully that's, that, well that hopefully, every Christian is moving that way. Either kicking or screaming, but they're going. 
Or this word here, being sanctified, could mean this. That it's a process, but it's you got saved, you got saved, you got saved, you got saved, you got saved. I preached at the mission on Friday, praying that people came to faith in Christ. That the work of Christ on the cross, his blood shed, is still sufficient today. And he is sanctified. He is calling people out of the world to his glorious kingdom at this very moment. Maybe you're here today. Today is the day of your salvation. That the blood of Christ is sufficient for you today. That Christ is calling you out of the world to his glorious kingdom as beloved children, blood-bought children of God today. And as people are coming to faith day by day all over the world, they're being sanctified, set apart. Not for anything they've done, but all that Christ has accomplished in his once and for all sacrifice. Come to Jesus today. There's room for you today. That's what he's saying. And what does this mean? We'll, We'll hit this quickly. We already talked about it a little bit already. And the Holy Spirit bears witness. Verse 16, this is what the Holy Spirit said. Now remember, Jeremiah said this. Now he's saying the Holy Spirit said it. So we know that the the word of God was inspired by the Spirit of God. This is the covenant, Jeremiah 31, he's quoting, that I will make with them after those days. This new covenant declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Right? Instead of putting his law on stones, handing them to Moses, the new covenant... God says, I'm going to write my laws on their hearts. I'm going to write their laws laws on their minds so that inwardly, mentally, we're delighting in the will of God. We're delighting in the moral law of God. We're delighting in doing what God wants us to do. If you're here today and you're like, yes, I'm a Christian. I don't care what God says. You're kidding yourself. Because the Holy Spirit now resides in it. Don't make life easy. It doesn't like, you know what? I always do the will of God, but there's a desire by way of the Holy Spirit, by being born again, born anew, to love Jesus, to to love the Lord. And you know what? The Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant were both sealed in blood. Jesus died and sealed the new covenant with his blood. And look at the connection here in this verse between the ability to know God, to love God, to obey God, and the forgiveness of sins. See the connection? The new covenant, new sacrifice brought forgiveness in a better way than the Levitical system could do. And now our sins have been forgiven. The Holy Spirit now dwells in us, our new sanctified bodies. And now we can enter into the very presence of God. Why? Because he's living in us. The guilt remained under the old covenant and now it's been completely removed. God will remember their lawless deeds, their sins no more. Notice the finality A complete and full sacrifice for sins. Sins remembered by God as sins that have never been propitiated, have never been forgiven. But sins that he remembers no more are under the blood of Christ. The offering of Christ himself, his body, his blood, his sacrifice is completely and fully effective forever because it fulfilled God's will. Now you see, listen family, now you see why the author is so intent, so resolved on declaring the supremacy, sufficiency, and superiority of Jesus Christ, all the while asking, why do you want to go back to something else? 
family this morning, why would you want to go back to something else, to a religion, to, 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 to this thing that you keep going back week after week, day after day, month after month, year after year? It can't atone for your sins. Only Jesus can. Frank Dellett said, the priest of the Old Testament stands timid and uneasy in a holy place, anxiously performing his service and hastening to depart the service is done and as far as from a place where he has no free access, can never feel at home, the priest can never feel at home, whereas Christ sits down in everlasting rest and blessedness at the right hand of majesty. In the Holy of Holies, his work accomplished, he awaiting a reward. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, on the night in which he had his Passover dinner with his disciples, late in the evening, remember what Jesus did? After dinner, Judas had affected, uh, defected. He went outside and he took his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he fell. And the Bible says that his soul was sorrowful unto death. He said to Peter, James, and John, wait here. I'm going a little further. And he falls and he, and, he, and he says, is it possible that this hour might pass from me? He's talking to the Father. Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will but what you will. And we know what happened. He willingly obeyed the Father, drank the cup, which is the wrath poured out on him on the cross, so that God will, listen, will remember your lawless deeds, your, forgive, your sins no more. Where there is forgiveness of these under the blood of the eternal Son, once and for all sacrifice, there is no longer any offerings for sins. Stop trying to offer sacrifices. Stop trying to self-atone. Stop trying to self-justify yourself. We're going to sing a song. And the song, I'm asking you all to, to, to respond, to stay here if you can, respond with a heart of love, a heart of gratitude, a heart of faith, and singing to the Lord we're going to talk about a chasm that's between us, like, 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 the, like the curtain that was once there that's been torn by Christ. We're going to sing about uh, how Christ came in the middle of the night in your life, the darkness, his loving kindness tore through the shadows. His work is finished. Who can imagine this mercy? Who can, who can imagine this boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and to, to bear my shame. The cross is spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own beautiful Savior. I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, what? My living hope. Hallelujah. Trust Christ. Let's, let's sing that song as the band come on up. As we sing that song, let's sing it with hearts full of faith, full of gratitude, full of thanksgiving. And don't sing it to the screen. Sing it to Jesus. And give your life to Christ if you never have. Rejoice in his blood that was shed for you this, this morning as we sing together. Let us sing together. Father, we pray that now as we respond, we respond in faith, trusting in all that Christ has accomplished for us on Calvary.